Our scripture reading this morning is from the book of 1 John, chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. Again, the book of 1 John, chapter 5, starting with verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Well, we have a guest preacher with us today, so, but I wanted to just say a word of introduction to him. We have um, Dominic um, Silla and his wife Martha with us today, so uh, warmly welcome them. Um, Dominic is uh, currently serving, I believe, through the end of the month as the intern at Living Hope Orthodox Presbyterian Church. Uh, but I uh, know Dominic through a, a Reform Ministers Fellowship, um, ministers together in this area. So let me invite Dominic to come on up and bring God's word to us. Good morning. I hope everyone's doing well today. I really appreciate the privilege of being invited to your pulpit this morning. I appreciate it. Thank you, Pastor Mark. Um, If you'll flip with me in your text, or if you're there already, to 1 John 5, and we'll open our time in prayer this morning. Lord of hosts, Father in heaven, we thank you and we praise you for another glorious day in your creation. We thank you for the privilege of being able to gather so freely and so openly together, Lord, to open your word. I pray that you would bless us this morning, Lord Jesus. I pray that you would bless the reading and the understanding of your word. Pray that it would find purchase in our hearts and that you would make use of it, Lord, to draw us near to you and toward one another. We ask these things in your holy and precious name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, On the 6th of February, in the year of our Lord, 1952, Her Royal Majesty Queen Elizabeth II acceded to the throne of the United Kingdom and became the head of the Church of England. And upon the death of her father, King George VI, and in June of 1953 at her coronation ceremony that was held at Westminster Abbey, the Archbishop of Canterbury, Geoffrey Fisher, asked Her Majesty for the following. Will you, to the utmost of your power, maintain the laws of God and the true profession of the gospel? Will you, to the utmost of your power, maintain in the United Kingdom the Protestant Reformed religion established by law? Will you maintain and preserve inviolably the settlement of the Church of England and the doctrine of worship, discipline, and government thereof, as by law established in England? And will you preserve unto the bishops and clergy of England and to the churches there committed to their charge all such rights and privileges as by law do or shall appertain to them or any of them? To which Her Majesty responded, All this 
I promised to do. Since that time, Queen Elizabeth had gone on to become the longest reigning monarch to ever sit on the British throne, just as our president takes an oath to uphold, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States, the Queen made this solemn vow to uphold the laws of God and the true profession of the gospel. However, the essence of this duty and responsibility that was given to her to maintain this true profession of the gospel was not unique to Her Majesty. It is the duty of every Christian to love God and to keep his commandments, to confess the true faith, to love God and to love his people. This is where we find ourselves entering into this last chapter of 1 John, specifically 1 John 5, 1 through 5. In this last section of 1 John, in, in 1 John 4, 12 to 21, the apostle exhorts us as to how we can know that we are able to abide in God and God abides in us. He told us that, uh, of the confidence that we have in Christ Jesus at the coming day of judgment. He reminds us once again of the reality that we love God because God first loved us. And finally, the apostle emphasizes the connection of loving one another and loving God. From here, the apostle picks up in 1 John 5 in order that we may uh, have a concise and compact understanding of his message to us. This is John's purpose in the first five verses, to give us a compact and precise understanding of what he has been saying all along in the book of 1 John. In 1 John 5, 1 through 5, we see John tie in all of the tests of how to know if one is a true Christian together. He's been giving tests throughout his book, and he ties them together here in our text this morning into one fluid piece with one thought flowing fluidly into the next. In, 1 John, or in, in verse 1, John starts with how we can know one has been born of God. And in verse 2, John details how we can know we are actually loving one another. In verse 3, John shows us what loving God actually looks like and how and why it is important. In verse 4, the apostle emphasizes the centrality of faith in our overcoming the world and the wicked one who is its temporary master. And finally, in verse 5, he rounds back to where we started with the person of Jesus Christ. If we had to sum it up, the apostle's message to us today is that faith in the true Christ, loving God, loving neighbor, keeping God's commandments are all interconnected. In the true Christian life lived out, all of these will be present. That faith in the true Christ, loving God, loving neighbor, and keeping God's commandments are all interconnected. In the true Christian life lived out, all will be present. Beginning with verse 1, John launches us off the rocket pad with a bold declaration. He says, everyone. There's two everyones here in verse 1, actually, but the, the first is this. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born from God. John is repeating to us an idea found elsewhere in his epistle, which is one of the most basic and fundamental aspects of theology of the Christian faith, that Jesus is the Messiah, the anointed one of God. 
This fundamental theological test of the Christian faith, the confession of the true Christ as he has revealed himself. And again, this concept is found all over John's letter. In verses 1 through 4 of chapter 1, for example, John confesses the true historicity of Jesus Christ as the Messiah, as the Son of God come in the flesh. In chapter 2, 1 through 3, John tells us that Jesus is our propitiation. In uh, John 2.22, John calls the person who denies that Jesus is the Christ a liar. In chapter 3, Jesus appeared to take away sin and destroy the works of the devil. And in chapter 4, belief in Christ is marked as the evidence of the presence of the Spirit of God, that he is the source of our new life and our propitiation and a basic requirement for abiding in God and God abiding in us. There are at least nine distinct times where John mentions the importance, the centrality of believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And John connects this confession of Jesus as the Messiah to being born again. John's statement is, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born from God. However, John is making it plain that the opposite is also true. If you do not confess the biblical Christ, you have not been born again. If you do not confess the biblical Christ, you have not been born from God. Belief in Jesus as the Messiah, as the Christ, is central to the Christian message and to the Christian faith. But that is not all. Not only are those who confess Jesus as the Messiah born of God, but John moves on to say, everyone who loves the begetting one also loves whoever has been born, begotten, from him. This should be, um, hopefully, um, this is drawing off of a point in the closing of chapter 4 where John noted, if anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. In essence, John is picking up on the second greatest commandment that Jesus gave to his disciples, that we are to love our neighbor. And he is applying it to make it an essential part of living out our Christian faith, our Christian life, our Christian proclamation on this earth. In context of 1 John, loving our neighbor is fleshed out to mean loving our brothers and sisters in Christ up and to the point of self-sacrifice, just like Jesus did for us. That's what John says in his third chapter. He points out that self-sacrifice, self-sacrifice for one another is what Christian love is to imitate. In question form, John is asking, how do you know someone has been born of God, born again, just like Jesus tells Nicodemus in chapter 3 of John's gospel. And the answer the apostle leaves us with is this. One, you believe in the Jesus of the New Testament over and against the false depictions of Christ that percolate into the world around us. John has endeavored to warn us about some of them, specifically in his context of the Gnostic or the Serinthian heresies that he is writing to combat. Such heretics at that time taught that it did not matter what one did with their body or um, their mind because the body and the mind and the spirit were all unconnected from one another, or that the material world was evil anyway so that it did not matter what occurred in the material realm. 
In our day, we see similar iterations of these teachings of false Christs erode, uh, attempting to erode the confessions and the preachings of the Christian church. And two, that if you love Jesus, you will love his church. His church, that is, his bride, his body made up of his people, the congregation of the righteous made visible by their gathering together in this earthly realm as one people united to him. These are the two things that have been at the core of John's whole letter, confessing the biblical Christ and loving his people. But why is John writing? Why does he feel inclined to put pen to paper? Because of what he says in verse 2. In this we know. John is writing to point the believer to the confidence, to the assurance that they have in Christ Jesus. With similarities to how the writer Luke opens his own gospel, the assurance that they can have in Christ is the focus here. Luke says, so that you may have certainty concerning the things which have been taught. The same concept causes John to write here to you, in this we know. John is aspiring to give us confidence, and in this case, so that we can know for certain that we are loving the begotten ones, the children of God. It would seem rather important, actually, since in verse 1, John makes it an outward evidence of knowing how we are born again. In verse 1, John is speaking of the necessity of confessing Christ and of loving whoever has been born of him, begetting, beginning with Jesus as our elder brother and resulting with us as the church. Now, John asks of us how we can be sure we are keeping this second greatest commandment, to love our neighbors, to which our, uh, our spouses, our children our brothers and sisters in Christ and our close neighbors all belong? How do we know that we are keeping this second greatest commandment which John has connected to our Christian confession? To John, the answer is simple. To John, the answer is simple. By keeping the first. In this we know that we love the children of God. Whenever we love God, and do his commandments. The Reverend John Stott is helpful in getting us right to the core of John's message. He notes on this passage, it is as impossible to love the children of God as such without loving God, as it is, as it is to love God without loving his children. A family relationship unites the two. Scripture's position is that if you, if we, do not love God as our first love, as a matter of priority, we are not and cannot love our neighbors properly as we were designed to do. And we being designed this way is not about God being some sort of self-absorbed egotist, saying we must love him and only him, as many are want to slander him in these days and these ages. Those in rebellion against their creator choose to label him as such, to appease their own guilty conscience, which testifies against them. No, we are called and must love God first and foremost because that is how we are designed as creatures made in his image. That is our highest good and our highest end is to love God and draw near to him. We are designed by nature to have a relationship with him, to be in relationship with God as our creator and as our heavenly father. And this Love for God 
as John notes. This love for God is demonstrated, as John notes, by keeping God's commandments. And we keep these commandments not because it saves us, not because it props us up in righteousness. There is no one righteous, no, not one. That's the Bible's confession about us. No, we keep these commandments because we are to love God. We are to draw near to Him. John has already made this clear, and we'll do so again before the end of our time together this morning, that our works do not save us, that our works do not uh, occur to bring us nearer to God. We do not obey God's commandments to be saved, but we are saved, so we endeavor to keep His commandments. We keep God's commandments because we love Him. We keep God's commandments because we wish, we desire to reciprocate to Him the love that He has and continues to pour out upon us in each breath that we take. We keep His commandments because, being His children, we seek not to grieve Him as our Heavenly Father by our disobedience. This is what serves, in part, to give us assurance of our salvation, that we keep well the second commandment by keeping the first, by endeavoring to love our Heavenly Father well. Moving on to verse 3, like a drill boring down deeper to a new level, John continues the process of taking us from these general concepts to the specific application of them, further developing the thought found in verse 2. In verse 1, he tells us to confess Jesus as the Christ, as the Messiah, and to love our neighbors. In verse 2, he tells us to love our neighbors by the only functional way available to us, by loving God first and by obeying His precepts, by obeying what He has instructed us to do. Here in verse 3, John reemphasizes further that if we are actually loving God, then we must keep His commandments. This begs a little bit of a question, however. How do we know what God's commandments are? These really are, uh, there, there really are two ways to sort of come to a resolution on this. There's two different types of revelation that God reveals himself to us. The first is a natural revelation, and the second is a more special type of revelation. Uh, more simply, what we see in the world around us in nature, and a special revelation that we find in the text of Scripture, in the Word of God breathed out onto the page. Natural revelation can tell us some things about ourselves and God. Nature testifies that there is a God, that there is a creator, that we have responsibilities and that right and wrong exists. It tells us that things are not the way they should be, that through death and suffering and misery, we are pungently aware that as human beings, we are not masters of our own universe and we are in need of constant aid. However, natural revelation does not get to the specifics. Special revelation, Scripture, does, however. Scripture, we confess, is God-breed, that is God's own testament to His creation about Himself and what He expects of us. The third question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism I find particularly helpful in this regard. What does Scripture principally teach? Answer, the Scriptures principally teach what man is to believe concerning God, and what duties God requires of man. In our context here in 1 John 5, the keeping of commandments which God gave us marks us out visibly as being born again. There are one, these are, they are one of the outward marks paired with this abiding faith of the person and the work of Jesus Christ in that redeemed soul. We see iterations of these commandments all over Scripture. In Eden, we see it with Adam and Eve to not eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. 
In failing to keep this commandment, our ancestral parents opened up the floodgate to all sorts of other necessary commandments. In Genesis 17, we see the commandment of the sign and seal of the Old Testament that Abraham uh, made, that God made with Abraham, specifically the commandment of circumcision. In Exodus 20, we are given the Ten Commandments and the outpouring of all of God's law at Mount Sinai. And the Old Testament goes on in far greater detail to discuss and give and go in depth into other laws that God gives his people. However, in the New Testament, as we've seen already, Jesus simplifies everything down to us to these two great commandments, to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. This reflects the first table of the law, the first four commandments. And to love your neighbor as yourself, reflecting the second table of the law, the six remaining commandments. But law-keeping is not where John desires to leave us. After all, we are not saved by law. We are not saved by keeping God's commandments. We are saved by grace. We keep God's commandments because we love God. Hence, the second half of John's statement, for this is the love of God that we might, that we should keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome and his commandments are not burdensome. It can be difficult to, in, in living out our lives not to backslide into old habits of perhaps law-keeping as a matter of rote memory and then grow resentful toward God. Forgetting his love for us is not conditional on our law-keeping, but on Christ. God's commandments are not meant to be a burden on our shoulders that we cannot bear up under. Professor Daniel Aiken summarizes it this way. Loving God rightly, therefore is not just external behavior and outward obedience. It is a longing to do his will from the heart out of gospel gratitude for who he is and for what he has done in Jesus. It is not an I have to be obedient. It is I want to be obedient. I love to obey this king. It is a loving disposition toward Jesus as our King and our Savior. If the grace of God and the love of Jesus Christ is not at the center of the keeping of his commandments, I would caution you to sit with your Lord, seek him out, and rediscover what first led you to him in the first place, what first enlivened your heart to his precepts, and what first awakened you to his love for you. Jesus' own words come to us and paint a beautiful picture. Come to me, all who, are la- all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. God's commandments are not meant to be burdensome, but they are meant to set you free from spiritual slavery and sin, from the death that sin inevitably brings. They exist to stop you from treating your fellow image bearers with contempt or usury. This is, in fact, God's frustration with his people of Israel at Sinai. God has freed them from the enslavement to the Egyptians in the Exodus only to have the people of Israel enslave themselves again to false worship, to false idols. 
God does not want this, does not desire this for you as his people to return once again to spiritual slavery. Loving God is not, nor should it be, burdensome. If we feel burdened, he tells us to come to him, to unburden our souls, to learn from him, to draw near to him. Seeking God out in prayer and in his word are two of the primary ways we do this. Telling him of ourselves, resting in the guarantee of what he has said regarding himself and of his disposition toward us. I love personally what the psalmist says in Psalm 107. Praise the Lord, for he is good, and his love, his steadfast love, endures forever. But remember, we are also a church. We are to love one another. We are to bear up with one another under burdens. We are to lift up each other in those burdens. This is how we are to keep the commandments of God, by drawing near to God and by drawing near to one another. Moving on to verse 4, we are met once again with that everyone statement, only this time it is a promise. John makes to us that promise that everyone who is born from God overcomes the world. Throughout 1 John, the apostle has been promising that the coming day of glory is approaching, that we will see Christ just as he is, and he will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. All of those who have been born of God, all of those who are God's children, will overcome the world. Like the faithful shepherd that he is, Jesus leaves none. He forgets none that are his of his flock, and he will bring into his pasture all of them that are of his fold at the conclusion of all things. He tells us, Jesus, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I came that you may have life and have it all the more abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. Jesus' death saves us from the stain of sin, from the slavery to our sins. His resurrection guarantees us our victory over our own spiritual and physical death in this world that John tells us is passing away. John tells us, do not love the world or the things in the world, for the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. John promises to us that we have already overcome the evil one by the victory bought for us by Jesus Christ. And now we live in anticipation for what comes next, the overcoming of the world. Remember, we live in a situation that is what many biblical scholars have called the already not yet. We are sons and daughters of two worlds, one slowly fading into nothingness and one coming into its fullness at the anticipated day of Christ Jesus. But that is not all. The apostle seeks to give us further clarification. He seeks to tell us precisely how we achieve our spiritual conquest, this overcoming of the world, which itself is passing away. John tells us that while, yes, keeping the commandments of God are important, they are necessary, and that confessing Christ is important and it is necessary, and loving God's people is important and it is necessary, it is by faith that we overcome the world, by our faith granted to us by the Holy Spirit. And this is the victory which has overcome the world, our faith. It is by faith that all which John has been speaking of 
in his book, in his epistle, is accomplished. The way John uses faith is not creedal consent, but essentially relationship. Faith is more than simple mental agreement to a vague hope of what is or may be. Faith, in in John's context, is an absolute trust in the historical, completed reality of the person and work of Jesus Christ, that he still lives and lives in you by his Spirit. Jesus Christ dwells with you, and he dwells in you. There will never be a day, Christian, when you can say, I did not know my Savior, Jesus Christ. It is this faith created in you by the Holy Spirit who resurrected you from spiritual death and made you alive in Christ that brings you across the finish line. The confessing of Jesus as the Messiah is a result of this faith. The loving of God's children in spite of their frustrations, their burdens, their joys, their sorrows, their annoyances are all as a result of this faith. The loving of God is a result of this faith. The keeping of commandments, likewise, is a result of this faith. It is by this faith and this faith alone which grants us victory, which overcomes this fading world and brings us into the new heavens and the new earth which are being created. You are saved by faith in Christ Jesus. Trust in him. And now, rounding off our time together in verse 5, the apostle says, And who is the one who overcomes the world, if not the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? In faith, if if faith is how we overcome the world, the question that is relevant is what should our faith be placed in? I sort of have given it away, John has sort of given it away that our faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ and in him personally is what saves us. Your faith as a Christian, as a true son or daughter of God, is and ought to be tied directly to the object of your faith, Jesus Christ. The person who has faith in the one who has, is the one who has overcome the world Paul noted that for the Christian to be absent from the body, to die, is to be present with the Lord. And in fact, Jesus repeatedly refers throughout the Gospels to this concept of entering into life. Jesus even said that if the one who endures to the end is saved, the end being their physical death um, or his return to collect us all to himself, uh, to be called to our spiritual home, the one who endures to the end will be saved. This is accomplished by faith. But we do not simply overcome the world via our death. Uh, Our lives lived out faithfully every day, trusting in Jesus Christ, is proof positive that we are and that we will overcome this world. Jesus' promise to us is that the long-term testimony of the Christian is that from the moment they entered into the newness of life via the regeneration of the Holy Spirit, they entered into eternal life. You already have overcome the world my dear Christian brothers and sisters, by placing faith in the cross of Jesus Christ, you are now living that eternal life that will only become more and more glorious at your death or at the coming of our Lord, whichever comes first. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Ultimately, John brings us back to the place where he started with Jesus, with the need to be born again and to confess Jesus. But if you notice, this is not the same concession in uh, verse 1. In verse 1, John says, everyone who believes in Jesus, uh, that Jesus is the Christ, has been born from God. But here, John says something just slightly different. And who is he that overcomes the world if not the one who believes that Jesus is 
the Son of God. The difference is subtle, but it is there. In verse 1, the person must confess that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one of God, the Savior of his people. John is speaking to something different here. In verse 5, the confession rests on confessing Jesus as the Son of God. John is speaking toward the two aspects of the person of Jesus, one as the human Messiah, come in the flesh to save his people, the other as the God-man, the second person of the triune Godhead, condescended to save his particular people in the incarnation. If you are to confess Jesus Christ, you must confess him both as your Savior, as your Messiah, and as your God. Scripture does not allow us to create a Jesus in our own image. We must confess the Christ of Scripture, Christ as he is, not Christ as we design him. Coming to a conclusion here. In, this, in the book of Hosea, God demonstrates with specificity the sins and the adulteries of his Old Testament people. But he also reassures them of his faithfulness. He speaks to those who have stumbled and fallen, and he tells them, Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled in your iniquity. We are all guilty of this. We are all guilty of spurning our God, of not recognizing Jesus for who he is as our Savior and as our God. We have all failed in some measure to keep the commandments of our God and to love him well as his people. And we are very much similar to Old Testament Israel in this way. We, we can be tempted to think that because we live this side of Christ, however, the, the exacting necessity of holiness and righteousness is somehow abrogated. My dear friends, it is not. God is still holy. He has not changed, nor will he ever. But we can be thankful living this side of the cross that there is one who has and can make satisfaction for us on our behalf. If you are a believer, I say to you, brother or sister, Christ has died for you. Your sins are absolved. He has wiped away all of your failings. And you can come to him and trust in him and know that he loves you and will never forsake you, never abandon you. He calls you to obey not because he is a tyrant, but because he loves you and seeks for your betterment and the betterment of your brothers and sisters. His, burden, his commandments are not burdensome, and he will be with you every step of the way as you endeavor to keep them. He will teach you from his word. He will lift you by his spirit. He will take you by the hand, and you will learn from him. If you are sitting here listening this morning and you do not know Christ, I call upon you to confess to him your failings, your sins. Speak to him of your life and trust that he will never forsake you or abandon you if you place your faith in him. God spoke through the prophet Hosea to Israel, a people who had turned their back on their God and who had committed spiritual adultery against him. God spoke to them and he called them to himself. He called them to repentance and faith in him and to live out that faith. Through Hosea, God said, I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely for my anger has turned from them. Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the upright walk in them. Trust in the Lord your God this morning. Have faith that he has already overcome the world, 
and will make you to do the same. For he will guarantee your success, the eternal life that he has already given you, and your eternal joy with him he will draw you into. Amen. Praise be to God for these wonderful works among the children of men. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you and we praise you for your goodness. We thank you that you have drawn near to us, Lord, and you have not forsaken us. I pray that we would trust in you in all these things and that you would be glorified by us. Let us keep your commandments well and know that you are with us as we do so. We ask these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.